I V M. We're Team Splano. Welcome to an all-new episode of Press Depot, a weekly podcast where we take Splano's mission to declutter the news one step further. Check out our newsletter for more stories and follow us at Splano Inn to keep up with all the fun things we plan for our Splano fam. So sit back, relax, and don't let the news give you the blues. I'm Sarah, your host for the day, and I've got Vagda with me to once again ensure we're not all grumps. I think we really need more people. <laughs> It's all on Vagda. Anyway, as always, we have three segments for you. In our big story, we're talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In our food for thought segment, we're taking a look at the buzziest phrase in business, the creator economy. And then in our final segment, we will be roasting and toasting our fave and least fave items from the week. All right, let's begin with our big story. Last Thursday, which was exactly a week ago, in a televised speech at around 5.55 Moscow time, which is 8.25 a.m. India time, Vagda thinks this is unnecessarily dramatic detail, but it is a war. So I think it's only valid to know when the doom began. Uh, President Vladimir Putin announced a military operation in Ukraine's East Donbass region and vowed to demilitarize and denazify the country. I think the weirdest take here is both sides have been calling each other Nazis with mostly no context. Uh, within hours, explosions were heard in cities across the country caused by Russian missile strikes. Troops poured over the northeastern border and from the east and the south. To the worst surprise, however, Ukrainians have managed to consistently slow down the Russian advance despite being severely outgunned. But experts agree that Putin has not launched an all-out assault as yet, and this only began to moderately change on Tuesday. The invasion progressed into its new, uglier phase, where civilian centers were being attacked in Kyiv, the capital, and Kharkiv, the second largest city. As of when we record, the UN says at least 136 civilians have died and 400 have been injured, but adds the real figure is likely considerably higher. The deaths included an Indian student, Naveen Shekharappa, who died on Tuesday while he was buying groceries. Peace negotiations took place on Monday, but they ended without a breakthrough, and thus the hostilities have continued. The fallouts of the invasion have been many, including skyrocketing prices for fuel and food in parts of the world. You can read more about them in our many, many explainers. The world led by Western countries like the UK, EU countries, and the US spearheaded a flurry of sanctions against Russia. The US and its allies pulled the trigger on one of the most severe penalties, cutting Russia from SWIFT, which is the global system used to make international payments. There were many other sanctions on Russian banks as well as on key Russian individuals. Countries like Germany, the Netherlands, the US, France, Czech Republic, and Lithuania have started providing Ukraine with military support and most of even Putin's friends have turned their backs on him. India, however, has been fairly non-committal, which we will get into in the later part of this segment. And uh, the growing isolation of Moscow seems to be really biting Putin because the invasion hasn't gone to plan. Any further setbacks may make him even more erratic, raising worries about how far he will go to win this war. There's a lot to grapple with in this story that is decisively changing the world. But today, we will focus on the two that struck out to us the most, 
Wagner will be looking at how, while most of the world rallied in sympathy for Ukraine, there was also a stark reminder that racism is ever present even today. And I will try to unpack India's foreign policy stance. Yeah. Okay. So in the last week, more than six hundred and sixty thousand people have fled Ukraine, taking buses, trains, or driving to Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria, Moldova, and Romania. Leaders of these countries have been welcoming to Ukraine's refugees, but we can't help but notice the glaring differences in treatment given to migrants and refugees from the Middle East and Africa, particularly Syrians who came in 2015. And as if the difference wasn't already obvious, the leaders went ahead and spelled it out. Earlier this week, the Bulgarian Prime Minister said, "These are not refugees we are used to. These people are Europeans. These people are intelligent. They are educated people." This is not the refugee we have been used to. People we were not sure about their identity. People with unclear pasts who could have been even terrorists. End quote. Wow. In December 2021, while addressing migrants and refugees from the Middle East and Africa, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban said, and I quote, "We aren't going to let anyone in." And now, in relation to Ukrainian refugees, he literally said, "We're letting everyone in." Of course, but. They're not letting everyone in, or at least maybe it's happening on the Ukrainian side. Now, back South Asian and、uh, Mediterranean refugees have shared accounts of being stranded at the borders while trying to make crossings into these countries. White Ukrainians have been prioritized. Ukrainian officials are prioritizing Ukrainians, and people of color are struggling to get onto buses. They're facing hostility at the borders, or they're just being denied any sort of crossing. You know where this is coming from, right? This is what Ukraine's former chief prosecutor said on air, and I'm quoting: "It's very emotional for me because I see European people with blonde hair and blue eyes being killed every day with Putin's missiles and his helicopters and his rockets." End quote. But that's not all. Even the media treats this war differently. Last Saturday, a CBS's news anchor said, and I'm quoting: "This isn't a place, with all due respect, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. This is a relatively civilized, relatively European—I have to choose those words carefully too—city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen." End quote. I'm just wondering, what is this due respect? Where is the respect? And and these are the words that are chosen carefully. Good lord. I want to know what his first thoughts were that he cancelled <laughs> it out and then came here. But it's also the choice of words that really strikes, right? Now it's a war. Everything else was conflict. Yeah, but that's not all. There's more. Al Jazeera's anchor Peter Dobby said, and I'm quoting again: "These are prosperous middle class people. These are not people trying to get away from areas in North Africa. They look like any European family that you would live next door to." End quote.、Of、really.、Course. Like because、yeah. the Middle East and Africa and Asia are just meant to be bombed by the West for made-up reasons like stashing WMDs, and why is it so surprising that this is in Europe? I mean, didn't Yugoslav war happen in like 1990s? And who's going to account for the two world wars, the Holocaust, and pretty so many civil wars in Georgia, Albania, and Greece? Wasn't that Europe? So enraging. And you know what? This is not nearly all the instances of racist news coverage. This there is so much racist media coverage that I read that it's shocking and enraging, but also does not surprise me at the same time. It's inexplicable. I think what actually surprised me this time around was 
leaders of the state of like a prime minister going on record in the time of crisis and saying this like somehow that still shook me i i'm not surprised by media i'm not surprised by a politician here a politician there but the topmost leaders of the country categorically saying hey this is different but you know what i expected to be totally the other like you expect this you just said you expect this from politicians i mean people who are world these leaders in these countries are also politicians what i expect is a better standard from the media because you know better i mean you're literally sitting there to question the government mm. and so people took notice i mean according to the west the uncivilized took notice the arab and middle eastern journalists association the amija condemned western news coverage as orientalist and racist in that it ascribes more importance to some war victims over others the amija sums up exactly what is wrong with the war's co- coverage and i quote this type of commentary reflects the pervasive mentality in western journalism of normalizing tragedy in parts of the world such as the middle east africa south asia and latin america it dehumanizes and renders their experience with war as somehow normal and expected end quote <laughs> yeah there isn't much else to say except this is awful awful times but i think the second part uh it's like obviously different from where we were but is moving beyond the internet outrage of like modi ji why are you not criticizing putin modi ji what are you doing or the exact opposite omg like visionary modi ji he knows best the truth is this government or not any government like in india does have to walk a diplomatic tightrope and delicately balance its ties with moscow as well as the west now i don't think i need to say this but i can obviously not be telling the experts what they ought to do and say but what i can do is unpack the considerations behind our foreign policy decisions good or not is not for me to call so here's everything that's happened until now on day 1 PM Modi spoke to Putin and appealed for an immediate cessation of violence between Russia and the NATO group and said the conflict can only be resolved through honest and sincere dialogue this marked a significant shift because for the first time India had framed the problem not as a regional conflict between Russia and Ukraine but actually named Jack NATO But on Sunday while the Security Council voted to convene an emergency special session of the General Assembly to consider a resolution condemning the invasion India along with China and the UAE abstained from voting but on this weekend the PM also spoke to Ukrainian President Zelensky and expressed deep anguish about the loss of life and property but did not mention Russia or use the i word Now to read between the lines on the day India abstained from voting at the UN it did explain the abstention by saying it was deeply disturbed but again did not name check Russia then it continued to call for a cessation of violence and also flag concerns about Indian national stuck in Ukraine fourth and i think the most important part to me at least it touched upon respect for territorial integrity and sovereignty and the need to honor them and lastly advocated for diplomacy as a solution so there wasn't a direct condemnation but it and it may not seem like a lot but for a country that finds itself stuck between a rock and a hard place even a whale condemnation is quite something india is in a unique position in that it's one of the few countries which has good relationships with both washington and moscow while the west conveniently expects india to take a clearer stand a former indian diplomat actually sums up india's position best india has bad and worse options to pick one can't tilt both ways at the same time <laughs> so 
So for once, I actually empathize. New Delhi shares important defense and diplomatic ties with Moscow, considering it is India's largest arms supplier. Despite our Make in India pivot, forty nine percent of our weapons come from Russia, which is down from the earlier seventy percent. But it's still like forty nine percent is still a significant, significant amount. Moreover, Russia has also time and again come to the Indian state's side when it comes to matters pertaining to Kashmir. So it's only expected that India sticks to its famed non-alignment strategy and simply promotes dialogue as the solution instead of taking a clear stance. And fear antagonizing one side or the other, and moreover, in the interest of keeping its own citizens safe, it chose it's chosen to just keep channels open with everyone instead of sticking to one side, which seems wise to a certain extent. And I think to sum up, Happy Moon Jacob in the Hindu puts it succinctly: India's position has unmistakably indicated that when it comes to geopolitics, New Delhi will choose interests over principles. What is it that? Is it that being a third world country, you're expected not to take a stand anymore? <laughs> But that's not all. That's not actually what's happening right now. Right now, a lot of countries have taken a stand. Yeah, they have, especially this time. But this is the time that we come back to. You know, uh, non-alignment is where we stand. That's where we stand. Yeah, it's very convenient for us. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we come to the end of our first segment. We'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Press Decode on the IBM Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to Press Decode on the IBM Podcasts Network. We're Team Splainer, and make sure you follow us at Splainer Inn on Instagram and Twitter to keep up with the Splainer fam. Today's food for thought is dedicated to Sara's unfulfilled love for TikTok. I'm going to come in here. It's not unfulfilled. It was just. Cut short very rudely by mm. Modi ji. Oh no! Okay, we're talking about creators. No, not the creator. Content creators. What? What did you think this is going to be about? God? No. <laughs> think YouTubers, bloggers, Instagram influencers, TikTokers, podcasters. Hello there. <laughs> They could be in the publishing industry. um communication or the arts but mostly people who would be making content that consumers find value in and that includes people who make memes the biggest value add honestly yes i totally agree and uh, we in fact actually not just us many people thought that it's an easy job to do but it's really not it takes a toll and that we've discussed on a previous episode of press decode which we will link in the description so in case you want to check it out but even the other stuff that you see in your regular life is made by content creators like the copies you read on the back of a packet of chips or advertisement scripts on tv or a meditation tape it's just that our medium of interacting with this content has become increasingly digital and the creators have become increasingly independent Earlier the advertising copy was written by a salaried copywriter at an agency. Now your ad is getting made by say someone who has 50,000 followers on Instagram. So dynamics have changed a little bit. Mm. Now we did an explainer on the creator economy last week primarily because I said hey I wonder how the content creators make money, you know? I see how they do these paid partnerships and all on Instagram but that can't be it. Like how much money do they make? This is, is it- exactly how we reached this explainer. Just by the way, it was Magda <laughs> going, but how? <laughs> yeah. So I don't know who whether they're getting rich out of it. Is it just them who's getting rich out of it? 
when i saw all this biz news with all kinds of like content monetization businesses i was just as thrown off as when we started out hearing terms like nft and metaverse and also got a traumatic flashback to lessons in securitization and subprime assets in law school so sara can you lend us a hand please and explain what this gibberish is about okay so to understand who the creator is i suggest you read our explainer and we we'll link it in cuz fair i say not fair that if i say we've done a good job but we've broken it down <laughs> but what i'm going to get into is how the monetization actually happens now in an ideal creator economy the creator would have a direct relationship with the customer who will pay for their product for example tipping someone for their twitter account or paying to watch someone's video oh, today can i pay somebody for making a meme directly i think so i mean ideally that would be cool yeah yeah but just but memes the sheer quantity is so much no i know How we much? consume so much of it freely i don't i don't i don't know if we want to pay for it that's what exactly that's actually the crux of the problem here mm. so we will come back to this thank you so today influencers however make money indirectly which is from brands who leverage their following to sell stuff this strategy has gone so big in today's day and time that the tables have turned and creator content has actually become central to marketing campaigns across the board for example in india creators are now paid to create reaction videos memes parodies to give a movie or series a boost and direct to consumer brands like plum mama boat mcafeen rely on influencers to sell their products so much so that the tried and tested celeb marketing strategy often takes a back seat uh actually the team at boat said oh we just use it to like cushion our creators like it's it's nice to have but not a need to have interesting but yeah and boat's been wildly successful in such little time hmm but this also makes it starkly clear that this whole egalitarian direct to consumer creator economy seems very very far away for now like the straightforward model across the world for creators has been to leverage their fame to market brands and their products 2021 survey in the us showed that 77% creators consider brand deals their biggest source of income oh interesting really i mean i was i expected it yeah I just didn't put any numbers to it. Fair. I actually thought it would be like literally you if you make money you only make it here. Hmm. Like I mean it's like that here definitely maybe in India. We're still talking about the US, right? That makes sense. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> And even the head of Patreon which is a platform that allows for users to subscribe to content creators admits uh the way members find new creators on YouTube art is on youtube or facebook or instagram or wherever it is a creator will there mention their patreon and so and these big tech platforms are largely monetized only via brand partnerships mm. but now big tech companies are coming to the rescue of smaller content creators not influencers who don't have the big deals by introducing tools for creators to monetize their audience so via direct money transfers offering premium content on payment or in any other way while taking a cut from the creator's earnings which can go up to 20% on twitter ticketed spaces Yes. And 30% on Apple and Google. 
Yeah, I actually noticed this. You know, uh, a few days ago, I saw one of the people I follow on Instagram came on. Uh, it showed up in my notifications tab that if I want to see some more content from them, I should subscribe to them, and that was like some four forty nine rupees I would have to give to like subscribe to this person who lives in the US to like watch their content. So it's something like that, no? Yeah, precisely, exactly that actually. Mm. And to counter this or boost this rather, startups are also building. paid private communities cohort based platforms tipping features and other tools which in most cases only charge single digit commissions unlike the big tech companies from creator earnings so this includes platforms like the global buy me a coffee or indian ones like kuhu tag mango and graphy that take around a 10% cut from the creator's revenue while allowing creators to directly earn from their subscribers mm-hmm. but in india especially like vagda pointed out right this direct monetization is yet to kick off in a big way mostly because of the lack of audience maturity is how uh, a duo of content creators put it the creator duo abhiraj uh, and neeti the famous abhi and new new duo generally the attitude is that people want content for free and expect the creator to provide everything for free yes so even when we alabadia of beer biceps fame Use these platforms to be ahead of their times. It's a good idea, all right, but I guess it's just a matter of waiting it out for content to be so indispensable that people are willing to pay up. Wow, content to be so indispensable. I mean, let's be fair. We're consuming it all the damn time. If yeah. it's not there, there's going to be a huge, huge, huge vacuum. Yeah, we are. But then we've kind of accepted that we are the product here, right? Yeah. I can't be paying for my for content while also being the product. That's not going to happen. There has to be some better privacy for me to be the product. I mean, for me to pay for content. I mean, idealistically, no, it's not going to happen. But realistically speaking, it is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So I love that new businesses are coming up to try, you know, and help people stay independent and thrive. You know, just regular people making money. Love that. to improperly quote alexis rose love that journey <laughs> <laughs> nicely done very nicely done but let's take our rose tinted glasses off oh and- you're on a right <laughs> <laughs> and see if it's actually doing any good for our creators actually the creator economy or what it is sometimes called the passion economy is riddled with structural inequality let's start with surprise, the uh, surprise <laughs> it's like with the racism angle with the inequality like are we even surprised anymore yeah i feel like this is all we talk about it's the world we live in i don't think it's about us yes yes Yes. Okay. So yeah, we are at the urban rural divide looking at these TikTok like apps like Moj and ShareChat which came about and like became a big deal after TikTok was banned. Sara, did you get on any of these by the way? Unfortunately not. Maybe you should look them up. See, already okay, I should, but I already spent so much time on Reels and Twitter that I think like I'd be jobless if I got into any more apps. Okay. I'm going to tell you not to do it so that for my sake cuz <laughs> <laughs> we work together <laughs> now uh these apps like moj and sharechat have a huge presence in rural india but because the creators are all independent and not organized many times they don't know how to monetize their fame and this is where they fall prey to touts and fraudsters who promise them all kinds of things movie contracts endorsements verified social handles greater following and reach only to swindle them in the end 
and in some instances they've even been locked out of their own handles oh no yeah plus their content is in regional languages but the content monetization businesses are still very much in english so they battle identity theft fake agencies and all these touts and frauds and stuff that take advantage of the fact that they are first time mobile users and they are not comfortable with english mint for example points out that there's one content creator shivani kumari who has 740000 subscribers on youtube and over 1.8 million followers on instagram which is more than veer das dolly singh malika dua and shrishti dikshit but she still doesn't know how to capitalize on her content and doesn't have a verified handle and all these imposter accounts are eating away on from her follower pie some of these imposter accounts have 100000 followers and even claim to do paid promotions for brands so that's something but now let's come to what happens when you learn how to monetize your content on these short video platforms there's a huge disparity between what brands offer to pay creators and what creators actually receive there are many agencies and contractors who are paid to find new content creators for these short video platforms but there are no rules as to what the payment structure is so which means that very little ends up going to the creators influencer marketing agencies that represent creators make off with 80% of the revenue that is paid to the creator 80% yeah there's no rule na there's no rule and if you have had a look at any kind of unorganized sector contracts this is what they are like what do you do if you don't know english you don't know how to deal with these touts wow and that's not all within creators themselves there's huge disparity top 1% of streamers earn more than half of all revenue on the gaming platform twitch the same holds true for podcast creators and top 10 publications on substack collectively make more than 20 million dollars a year while less popular newsletters typically make only tens of thousands annually so it's pretty unequal Yeah. You know, there's this uh there's this venture capitalist Legion who made a targeted investment fund for creators. She's also the one who termed the uh, who coined the term by the way, passion economy. Oh. Mm. Uh she noted that there is a missing creator middle class. She said that mm. the current creator landscape more closely resembles an economy in which wealth is concentrated at the top. It sounds like just another Oxfam report to me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's not new either, you know, as Axios notes, it mirrors all of the previous waves of digital media economies built before it via social media, blogging and websites. New platforms have long offered hope of empowering smaller voices only to see the top creators reap the most benefits. That is not a great note to end on, but on that note, we come to the end of this segment. We will be right back after a short break. You're listening to Press Decode on the IVM Podcast Network. Welcome back to Press Decode on the IVM Podcast Network. It's time for our final segment, Roast or Toast. Sarah, get in. Thank you. <laughs> Scientists have found that female mosquitoes learn to avoid pesticides if they have been exposed to it just once and manage to survive. Essentially, mosquitoes are capable of associating memories with certain objects, cues, and smells. The scientists added that this was just a sign that we have underestimated behavioral changes and learning capabilities in mosquitoes. Yep. As someone who lives in Kerala, which is a tropical mosquito heaven, 
I don't think I need to explain why this study is straight out of hell. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it did let me have a I told you so moment with my mom, considering she's always telling me I get bitten because I don't use nearly enough Odomos or I'm lazy about it. But guess what, mom? These damn machars have beat the system. Mm. <laughs> Except beyond the two seconds of yeah, I was right. The biggest loser is still me. So yeah, this sucks to suck, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will. I have a fave item, like always, bringing positivity to Presti Code. In order to be approved, condoms have to have five percent or less failure rate. But I did not know until last week that condoms have only ever been tested for failure in penile vaginal sex. What? Yes, same. Even I didn't know it was news to me. Anal sex has always been an off-the-label use. Can you believe it? Normal condoms apparently fail a lot easily in anal sex, and this when anal sex carries much higher chances of transmitting STDs and HIV. Anyway, now finally the uh, US FDA has approved the first condom that is specially tested for anal sex. The one male condom has less than one percent failure rate in anal sex, even better than your normal condoms. Very well. So that was my most fave of the week. I think everything is great except who is naming these products. I think <laughs> we really need to get better creators. Ah, uh, true. Anyway, that was our show this week. Thank you so much for joining us on Press Decode. You can catch us every Thursday on the IVM Podcast Network. And guys, please remember: don't let the news give you the booze. <laughs>